Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. In uncertain times, students seek truth. Your donation brings the Catholic intellectual tradition to elite universities. Act by December 31st, and your gift doubles, matched by up to $100,000. Go to ThomisticInstitute.org forward slash light of truth to illuminate minds this Christmas. That's ThomisticInstitute.org forward slash light of truth. The title of the talk is Balderdash, what it is, why we tolerate it, and how we can reduce it. I fell in love with the notion of Balderdash several years ago when I came across an essay by Neil Postman entitled The Educationist as Painkiller. Postman's argument runs something like this. If our goal is to increase intelligence, our primary means ought to be to try to reduce our stupidity. Reducing stupidity ultimately requires reducing all of stupidity's expressions, stupid thinking, stupid behaving, and stupid speaking. Each of these expressions probably is both a cause of and caused by the other two. For example, I might pour coffee into my Cheerios because I was stupidly thinking it would save me time. Or I might ask you if you have a Bookface account because I interact stupidly with technology. Or I might have trouble understanding where you're from in Illinois because I only ever talk about two cities, Chicago and non-Chicago. <laughs> we could probably reduce our overall stupidity by reducing any one of these three expressions. But the one that seems like it's most under our control and therefore the most promising to begin with is our stupid speech. We can't stop ourselves from thinking stupid thoughts, but most of the time we can stop ourselves from blurting them out. And if we persevere in not saying stupid things, perhaps in time we'll not think them either. Postman defines stupid speech very broadly as, quote, anything we say that produces unnecessary confusion, pain, and misunderstanding. Close quote. If we wish to reduce our stupidity in speech, Postman suggests, we ought to begin by identifying the ways that stupidity shows up in my speech in particular. Postman nicknames all stupid speech balderdash, and he claims to have identified 32 varieties in his speech. In sloganeering, for example, rather than thinking a response through, we throw out a slogan that fits the situation generically at best. If it isn't one thing, it's another. You do you. This causes pain by fixing everyone's attention on dull generic truths and by shutting down any serious consideration of the particular situation at hand. Another example, in Eichmannism, we speak about an undesirable reality as though it were desirable in an attempt to cover over the undesirability. We are pleased to inform you that tuition has been raised by 50% less than last year. <laughs> or 
to someone sitting comfortably on a couch, thank you so much for taking the garbage bins to the curb. <laughs> this causes confusion and probably anger by presenting a message in a medium that's obviously and intentionally inappropriate and thus insulting. The misrepresentation makes the bad message worse. Postman's essay interests me because it's realistic, it's hopeful, and it's incomplete. It's realistic because it acknowledges that stupidity is everywhere. It's hopeful because it promises an actionable response that doesn't involve the government. <laughs> and it's incomplete because there is one variety of balderdash that Postman doesn't include in his list of 32, which I would like to examine in this talk. From this point forward, I'll refer to this particular variety simply as balderdash, even though Postman would only regard it as one kind of balderdash. And I'll do this both because balderdash is less clumsy than saying one kind of balderdash, and also because the phenomenon that I have in mind I think is so prevalent that it deserves to be thought of as the primary instance of balderdash. So balderdash with a capital B. This phenomenon that I'm calling balderdash is this. Using a word correctly without understanding what it means and not realizing that you're doing it. My talk will have four parts. In each part, I'll ask a different question about this phenomenon, and I'll playfully propose a few answers. And those answers will probably have a fair bit of balderdash in them. So this is an open invitation to you in the Q&A to call out whatever in my talk seems to you to be balderdash. Part one, we'll consider what balderdash is. Part two, we'll consider why we both fall into balderdash and tolerate it. Part three will contain some suggestions about how we might go about reducing our balderdash. And then I'll conclude by considering whether all these claims that I'm making about balderdash are Thomistic, and thus, whether the Thomistic Institute was right to sponsor this talk at all. <laughs> so the short map is what, why, how, and then whether. Part one, what balderdash is. I'd like to take three passes at trying to explain what balderdash is. I'll start off the first pass by pointing to balderdash's defining features. Balderdash, I'm proposing, is the phenomenon that comes about under three conditions. First, the speaker uses a word correctly. Second, the speaker doesn't understand what the word means. And third, the speaker isn't conscious of his not understanding. Going through these one by one. We use a word correctly when we provide the kind of word that's socially recognizable as a response to a given stimulus. Stimuli include the words and actions of others, as well as the rules of grammar and syntax. So for example, if I ask you how you're doing and you reply, I'm taller, you failed to use the word taller correctly. It's to say it's not a socially recognizable response to the question. It's worth noting that it's actually hard for us not to use words correctly, at least in our native language. This is in part due to how we first acquire language. We learn initially when to say words, that is by observing and imitating and then by getting corrections. Only afterwards do we begin to learn what those words mean. Here are two examples. 
My grandfather used to take the whole family on drives through the redwood forest. And the roads that would frequently, you know, take a lot of switchbacks would get backed up by logging trucks, trying to make their way up and down the mountains without falling over the edge. Every time my grandfather would see a truck in the distance, he'd yell out a colorful word, expressing his frustration at, at having to slow down. He continued to do this until he realized that his four-year-old son, my uncle, was pointing at fallen trees on the side of the road and calling them by that same colorful word. My uncle had observed and imitated my, my grandfather's response, even though he didn't correctly identify the stimulus. Another example, parrots learn to speak in much the same way, except that their primary stimulus is an emotion and only secondarily something that they see. This is why parrots in bars learn to swear at precisely the right moment. This is also why the parrot that I had when I was in college had a very hard time picking up the phrase that I tried to teach him. Quid quid recipitur ad modens recipientis recipitur. <laughs> uh, for those of you who don't speak Latin, at least as a native language, that's that, uh, that which is received is received in the mode of the receiver. I tried to say this with emotion. I was testing the bird to see if it would end up saying this whenever I got excited. So I tried to make myself very excited and then say it. And unfortunately, the only thing that the bird picked up was quid quid, <laughs> which effectively means in Latin, whatever. <laughs> so we use a word correctly when we provide an appropriate response to a given stimulus. The second condition for balderdash is not understanding what a word means. We don't understand a word's meaning if we're unable to identify what the word points to in experience. Words point in much the same way as fingers do, except that words can point to both physical and non-physical realities and can do so in many different ways. In evidence of this, contrast acting out unfair in charades with just saying that's not fair. Contrast also answering what hurts by pointing with your finger and then by pointing with words. With my finger, I can point to my trunk, but without words, you don't know whether what hurts is my body or the skin abrasion that might be on my midriff or the left side of my gallbladder. With words, I can say inside, around the area of my intestines. Note here that some words, like prepositions, don't actually point to things, but they specify how we're pointing. And then other words, like the word preposition, doesn't point to a thing, but to another word. Lots of pointing. <laughs> there are some occasions when it's very obvious to us what a word points to. So consider the very young child who's in the stroller and says, doggy, and that's usually accompanied also by finger pointing. Right? Consider, a few months ago, a very drunk man pointed at me and said, a nun. <laughs> and consider me earlier this morning, very early, I looked up and even though it was a time of silence in our convent, I said, moon. It's a full moon, I think. <laughs> so apart from being very young, very drunk, or very amazed, it's actually pretty challenging to identify what a word really points to. 
Consider, for example, what the word fact points to. Does the word fact point to the same thing when we say math fact as when we say it's a fact that in 1492 Columbus sailed the ocean blue? Also, what specific activity or activities are pointed out by the phrase critical thinking? So when we're committing balderdash, we point without being aware of what we're pointing to. The third condition of balderdash is not being conscious of not understanding our words. Consider an example of when this third condition isn't present. Suppose a certain Dominican sister decides to try to pick up some Gen Z language. She can't afford a Rosetta Stone, so she decides to try to pick up the language just by imitating the natives, namely her students. <laughs> On occasion, she will correctly imitate a native's use of the word based or lit or mic drop. <laughs> but the first few times she correctly imitates, she won't know what the words mean, let alone how they differ. And since she's consciously trying to figure out what the words mean, she's very aware of her lack of understanding. In contrast, with balderdash, we somehow remain oblivious of our not understanding a word, even as we're using it correctly. This boggles my mind, and we'll return to it later. So balderdash occurs then when we give an acceptable verbal response to a given stimulus without being able to identify what the words point to an experience and without being aware of this inability. That was pass number one, here's pass number two. I'd like to identify some balderdash imposters. Let me like to identify seven phenomena that occur if one or more of these three conditions is missing. In bluffing, we understand a word's meaning and we consciously use it incorrectly. For example, suppose you're strapped for time and your roommate asks you if you'd like to go pray a rosary. So under your breath, you say, my rosary, and then reply, oh, I've already said my rosary. <laughs> That's bluffing, centering on the meaning of the word said. In spoonerisms, or getting mixed up, we understand the meaning of a particular word or phrase, but through inattentiveness, we come out with a word or phrase with a different meaning. For example, I once intended to wish someone health and well-being, but what actually came out was wealth and hell-being. <laughs> I knew the meaning of the words that I used, and I was aware of their meaning, but I didn't use the words correctly. In reciting, we use a word correctly, at least grammatically, and we understand its meaning, but we aren't consciously attending to, what the, to that meaning when we speak it. This isn't terribly interesting, except when our lack of conscious attention causes us to use the words inappropriately. So for example, if you were to end a phone interview by reflexively saying, bye, love ya. In signaling, we understand the meaning of a word and we use it correctly, but we do so with the primary intention of drawing a listener's att attention to something about me and not with the intention of drawing my listener's attention to the meaning of the word. This is to say, rather than pointing to something, the words point back at me. For example, if you're on a date and you want to signal to your crush that you're a Thomist, <laughs> you follow up a few of your comments with, 
quad era demonstranda. <laughs> you know what it means, that which was, was, which was to be demonstrated. And you know, and you use it correctly, but you use it to point to the kind of pointer you are, not to point to anything. In speaking fluffily, we correctly use words that we might understand, but that we literally don't need to use. Building on this and going along with the idea of speaking fluffily, we actually won't know that we don't need to use these words because we're not truly trying to point to experience, but only trying to speak correctly. <laughs> if you're confused, it's because of the fluff. In nonsense or gobbledygook, we use a word that doesn't have any socially recognized meaning and therefore also doesn't have any correct or incorrect use. I'm not sure it's possible to speak gobbledygook without being aware of it because everyone will let you know. And I even had a hard time coming up with an example of gobbledygook, but I think that might count. <laughs> so, okay. Lastly, in babbling, we speak with the intention of enjoying how the words feel in our mouths, like pop, indubitable, or anti-disestablishmentarianism. <laughs> Here, we're not even using really using the words, since we're only saying them to enjoy the experience of speaking, and not to convey anything either to ourselves or to anyone else. If we happen to say something that makes sense to listeners, it really is just happenstance. Pass three at getting at what balderdash is. These are some non-defining features of balderdash. About eight years ago, I began experimenting with giving very short lectures and requiring very long student-run discussions. The discussions were full of balderdash. <laughs> so full that the students were zoning out almost as much as I was. <laughs> there was too much balderdash for me to point out on my own, so I came up with a few rules that, I would put, that would put the burden of identifying and then trying to sort out the balderdash on the students. Rule one was anyone who suspected that the speaker, even if that speaker happened to be himself, was committing balderdash, has to yell out, balderdash. Rule two is that the exception is you can use a word if your intention is to try to clarify it. And then third was, if you're not trying to clarify that word, that balderdash word, you're not allowed to use it. And I learned only two weeks ago that this practice has a name. It's called tabooing. I think based off of the game, taboo. After running this experiment for eight years, there are two features of balderdash that have consistently come up. First, there aren't any words or phrases that are balderdash in themselves. Balderdash is a matter of the individual speaker's understanding of the words he uses. It's not the case, for example, that the phrase, the deeper meaning, is meaningless in itself. It's often the case that the student who uses this phrase doesn't know what it means. And it's rarely the case, but it's still possible, that a student might use this phrase in the presence of someone who does understand what it means, if it has meaning. Nonetheless, some kinds of words are more likely than others to be used without understanding. We're unlikely to commit balderdash with words whose meanings are controversial. This is probably because controversy heightens our attention to meaning. 
we are more likely to commit balderdash with words that are frequently used and that can mean so many things that they mean almost nothing. If you'd like some examples of these words, pick up any yogi tea tag. One of my favorites of the sayings that I, I tell there, are, there aren't many yogi tea drinkers here. <laughs> right? uh, for those of you who have not been initiated, there are always sayings that fit on the space of the tag that's attached to the tea. That, you know, uh, and uh, one of my favorites here is travel in grace, knowing that you are protected by love. I'm all for grace and love, but I have no clue of what they mean in that sentence. And I suspect that the writer of the tea tag didn't mean it, know it either. The second non-defining feature of balderdash is that it's very difficult to prove, either to yourself or to anyone else, that you're not committing balderdash. The source of the difficulty here is in showing that you understand the word's meaning. Consider how you might try to prove that you understand. Using the word in a sentence won't work, since by definition, in Balderdash, you can already do this. Trying to define the, the, the word also doesn't guarantee that you're not committing Balderdash, because you could just as easily parrot a definition that you'd read or looked up on the Google machine. For the same reason, it also won't work if someone asks you to define all the words in the definition, because you could just continue to parrot those as well. My students over the years have come up with three imperfect but workable tests for whether someone understood an allegedly balderdash term. According to them, you're probably not committing balderdash if, first, you can come up with your own definition, non-dictionary sourced, of the word, and then supply your own definitions of any suspicious words that you use in that definition. Second, you're probably not committing balderdash if you can distinguish the word that you're using from two things that it's like. That's to say, two things that you would be tempted to mistake it for. If you happened to find someone who had never had a brownie, which I did when I was in Australia, and that person asked you what a brownie was, rather than giving a definition, probably the better route would be to say, it's like fudge, but a little fluffier. And it's like chocolate cake, but a little denser. The third test that you're probably not committing balderdash, if you can pass it, is to identify at least two things in experience that the word points to. I say two because if you point to only one thing, it's not clear what aspect of that example the word signifies. Only by having two examples and seeing the similarity between them can you verify whether you're pointing to something or just gesturing vaguely or ambiguously at a bunch of somethings. Part two, why do we tolerate balderdash? Typically when we talk about tolerating, we're referring to other people. I think the more perplexing question in the case of balderdash is why we tolerate it in ourselves. This question is almost equivalent to asking, how is it that we fall into balderdash in the first place? This is to say, how do we come to use a word correctly without understanding it? And also, how do we fail to recognize that we don't understand? These are real questions, since understanding in general is something that we want. There seem to me to be three reasons why we fall into balderdash and don't notice it. First is that clarifying balderdash isn't absolutely necessary. We let balderdash hang around because for the most part, speaking or committing balderdash gets the job done. 
Most of our conversational exchanges don't require that we understand our words clearly, but only that we understand and are understood just enough not to mess things up. We live most of our lives in this mode where our desire to understand is limited to what's necessary to get a job done. A second reason why we tolerate balderdash in ourselves is because the work of clarifying balderdash is hard. It's far easier to memorize or to parrot things than to work things out ourselves. It's easier to be passive than to let others do the work. If we're afraid of doing the work ourselves, we'll tend to avoid even noticing that the work needs to be done. This not noticing can happen on a more or less conscious level. Consciously ignoring balderdash is like what happens when you pretend you didn't see your roommate drop the tissue that she just used because you don't want to pick it up and you don't want to tell her to. Unconsciously ignoring balderdash is even more fascinating than this. I think it happens something like this. In the space of a moment, you use a word and get a little confused. You make a feeble attempt at resolving that confusion, but you quickly get frustrated. But as soon as the frustration appears, you zone out, which in one fell swoop numbs the, the pain of frustration, relieves you of the burden of trying to resolve the confusion, and then blinds you to your confusion. Is anyone zoning out? Gotcha. <laughs> the third reason why we uh, tolerate balderdash in ourselves is because we realize that if we clarify our balderdash, we'll be held to a higher standard of speaking and acting. And that's hard. Sometimes we like our balderdash. We keep it around, not because we're afraid of doing the work of clarifying it, but because we're afraid of having to conform our actions to what we might realize in the act of making things clear. As long as we don't know the differences between things, we're not obliged to treat them differently. So we deliberately keep our understanding and our speech vague. This often happens in goal setting. We keep our goals generic because we're afraid of not meeting any goal. That's to say we're afraid of doing the work of really making progress and we'd rather have the satisfaction of feeling like we're improving while really what we're doing is just differently describing what we're already doing. Part three, what can we do to reduce our balderdash? Reducing balderdash is really made up of several smaller activities. At the very least, it requires identifying the balderdash that you habitually commit catching yourself when you're about to recommit, and then preventing yourself from committing new balderdash. Rather than addressing these activities separately, I'd like to offer three practices that collectively help with all of these smaller activities. The first practice is to get granular. Literally, to get granular means to consider the grain of sand and not merely the pile or the spoonful. Metaphorically, getting granular means attending to every aspect of something down to its elements. Practically speaking, the elements of a thing are as far as you can go. The ancient notion of an atom had this meaning. The atom was the smallest thing that existed. It was, by definition, the thing that couldn't be cut into anything smaller. 
If you wish to be clear in your speaking, you need to get granular in your thinking. Only by precisely considering what your words point to in experience will your speech be clear. Or rather, your speech will only be as clear as your thinking is granular. The second practice is getting curious. I propose the second because I think it's the best means to getting granular. It's not the only means to getting granular, but I do think it's the best one. Of the two reasons why we might get granular, namely out of fear or out of desire, it seems like getting curious about something is far better. This is to say we can get granular either because we're afraid of what will happen if we don't or because we desire what will happen if we do. What I mean by getting curious is directing our attention to the thing with the intention of finding something true. We turn our attention to the thing out of desire to see what we believe is there to be seen. Practically speaking, how can we get curious? I recommend first asking all and only the questions whose answers you don't know and whose answers you find yourself genuinely desirous of. In my book, if you're asking a question whose answer you already know, you're not really asking a question. You might just be showing off, or perhaps you're giving a Thomistic Institute lecture. <laughs> In my book, you're also not really asking a question if you don't really care about the answer. In this case, you're probably just going through the motions, saying the words because you're expected to say them, and because you're afraid of what would happen if you stopped. Another way to get curious is to stop avoiding boredom. This is hard because we live in a world that tries to make boredom rare. It's necessary, however, to face boredom and actually to seek it out because real questions arise in boredom. In order to face that boredom and to seek it out, we need to turn away from the distractions of work, pleasure seeking, and also just talking. And thus, I recommend, lastly, that you begin to seek out silence. Dramatic silence. <laughs> the third practice is get friends. In the context of our desire to reduce balderdash, what is a friend? And correlatively, how can we be a friend? On my count, a friend that will help with your balderdash is at least four things. First, a friend is someone who cares about speaking carefully because he cares about understanding as well. Note that this friend doesn't have to actually speak carefully, he just has to want it. Second, a friend who can help with your balderdash is someone who is able and willing to speak with you and not over you and not at you. In order to speak with me, a friend needs to respect my agency and his own. To respect someone's agency means believing that the person is at least distantly capable of articulating something that's true and that others might not have noticed. If the person doesn't respect my agency, he'll speak at me. If the person has disdain of my agency, he'll speak over me. And if the person doesn't respect his own agency, he'll probably not rise to the level of saying anything. 
but will only be parroting words and phrases that he hasn't bothered to seriously consider. Moving on, since that's depressing. <laughs> a friend, thirdly, is someone who, in speaking with me, is able and willing to, to be with me on deeper levels. Broadly speaking, we're with someone whenever we do or suffer what another person does or suffers, and we are aware of this sameness. On a very superficial level, we can be with someone when we're using the same words. So for example, people who use the phrase feminine genius are, in some sense, with everyone else who uses that phrase. On a slightly deeper level, you're with people when you understand the same words and believe the same propositions. For example, I'm with all those who believe that you can't love what you don't know. On the deepest level, you're with someone when you arrive at common understanding together. This is what I would like to call forging or actually making a friend. In order to be with someone on this level, you need to be willing to enter into the other person's confusion. You need to not inoculate yourself against what this person might potentially be saying. In order to be capable of doing this, a friend, fourthly, must be someone who enjoys conversing with me and who delights in speaking for my understanding and in knowing that I speak for his understanding. This differs from a mere utilitarian exchange where each person, each person appreciates the other as a source of dis, disinterested feedback. I would say that if this utilitarian exchange is all that you really want out of a conversation, you might as well stick with AI. A sign that someone enjoys conversing with you, incidentally, is that you can converse playfully, even especially about the things that confuse you. This is one way that a friend differs from an enemy. Both can see your confusion, but only the friend is willing to enter into your confusion and be with you in it. Suppose you happen to find a friend with these four characteristics. Practically speaking, how does this friend help you to reduce your balderdash? A friend is able to hear questions that don't occur to me to ask myself precisely because my words and my conceptions are always already familiar to me. A friend is able to ask me questions that I might lack the courage to ask myself because I'm more exhausted by my own balderdash than my friend is, and thus I'm more likely to cover my balderdash over. And lastly, a friend is able to remind me of my agency, namely that it's greater than any number of the acts of balderdash that I commit. I'll close this part with an example of what it looks like to get granular, get curious, and get friends in two kinds of speech. First, in speech about practical things. Suppose you decide to set a goal. I want to pray the rosary daily. We're unlikely to meet this goal and really unable to know whether we've met it until we get down into the granular particulars. We get down to the particulars by asking ourselves questions. Where will I pray? When will I pray? What do I mean by pray? <laughs> Recite the words? Saying the words to Mary? 
Will it count if I listen to other people saying the words, but just focus on being with Mary? If you can come up with, the, with these questions on your own, good for you. But since most of us can't, our greatest aid will be to find someone who will question us in these details. Second, in speech about speculative matters. Catholic University, following a medieval practice, has comprehensive exams for every degree. In philosophy, for the master's degree, the exams are oral and they are truly compre comprehensive. There are four professors, each of whom has 15 minutes to ask any question that he or she wants on the two areas of philosophy assigned. The questions always start out broad and easy, but if you answer well, they get harder and deeper. They get more granular into more nuances. If you answer poorly, you get another broad and easy question. The goal is to find the limit of your understanding and you demonstrate your limit by how well you can deal in the details. This medieval torture and medieval device <laughs> is designed to assess how clearly we think and speak, but it's also perfectly designed to dispose us to think and speak clearly. The goal is to be able to ground any comment you make in what's elemental, what's rock bottom. And the means of getting to rock bottom, both when you're studying and when you're being assessed, is to ask questions. In the assessment itself, your mentors ask you questions, but in the preparation, you've hopefully allowed two kinds of friends to ask you questions. First, your peers, who invariably get curious about different things than you. Second, the authors that you're studying who wrote their works precisely because they asked real questions. How has this talk been Thomistic? Has it been Thomistic? On the surface, it seems like it hasn't been terribly Thomistic. Thomas doesn't mention the word balderdash anywhere, and he doesn't have much to say about the philosophy of language, which is somewhat of a modern preoccupation it's what you do when you can no longer play with metaphysics. <laughs> it's also not fair to say that being clear is Thomistic, since many thinkers, both before and after St. Thomas, were clear. Despite these, I'm suggesting that this talk has been Thomistic nonetheless, provided that we can take Thomistic to mean being like Thomas. As I mentioned earlier, we can be like someone on different levels by saying the same things as that person says, by believing the same things that that person believes, and then by coming to belief through conversation with that person. I'm proposing that this talk has been something of a guidebook for how we can become like Thomas, not only in these three ways, but also by imitating what Thomas did and why he did it. We can imitate Thomas's clarity by imitating what he did to forge that clarity. And what Thomas did was get granular, get curious, and get friends. He got granular, and evidence of this, pick up a Summa article. It's impeccably arranged, not only in itself, but also with respect to the articles that come before and after it. In fact, some of his writings are so granular, with every detail considered and articulated, that they can be off-putting. I sometimes wonder if Thomas had to struggle to think so clearly. The struggle certainly isn't evident in the writing itself. 
The writing is evidence, rather, that Thomas was incredibly curious. In order to arrange his works as he did, he had to ask for each thing, what comes immediately before it? What comes immediately after it? How does it relate to these things? And how does it relate to me, the one who is asking about the thing? What is this thing's ultimate beginning? What is its ultimate end? Thomas was able to ask these questions untiringly because he had, among other things, the assistance of many friends. Some of his greatest friends were dead. The fathers of the church, Aristotle, Avicenna. Other friends were his intellectual rivals at the universities. Some of these were heretics and some were just Franciscans. <laughs> <laughs> Above all though, I believe that Thomas regarded the Holy Spirit as his friend. Not just in the ordinary sense of friend, but in the sense that I outlined before. Thomas thought things through with the Holy Spirit. He didn't just think about God and for God, but with God. With a radical openness to receiving all and only what the Holy Spirit wanted to give. One of my favorite images of St. Thomas is of him holding a quill, looking up and listening to the Holy Spirit who has his beak in Thomas's ear. Even if we don't imitate Thomas's quill holding posture, we should nonetheless imitate what Thomas did to speak so clearly. We should also imitate why Thomas bothered to speak so clearly. Thomas, following Aristotle, holds that there are three reasons why we bother to do anything, that is, why we regard anything as good. In the case at hand, we can desire to speak clearly either because it is pleasant, useful, or just noble in itself. We can want to speak clearly because it feels good to be understood, or because it's useful for growth and self-discipline, or because speaking clearly is just what we're meant to do. None of these reasons for speaking clearly are bad, and in experience, we probably have all three at any one moment. But I'm also convinced that at any one moment, one of these is primary. Which one was primary for Thomas? I suggest that it was the use. But I think there's two ways that speaking clearly can be useful. In Thomas's case, it was useful for evangelization. One of the Dominican mottos is contemplare et contemplata alis tradere, to contemplate and to give to others what one has contemplated. Only if we think clearly about things can we speak clearly about them to others. So for Thomas, speaking clearly in general was useful for speaking clearly about God. More importantly though, speaking clearly was also useful for Thomas's own contemplation of God. This is to say, my sense is that Thomas's primary motivation for speaking clearly in general was so that he could speak clearly with God. The way that we attend to our words is habitual. If we're sloppy or formulaic when we speak with others, we're more likely to be sloppy and formulaic when we speak with God. It's not that we intend to be this way, but rather that we can't help but be before God, whatever it is we are. If we want to speak clearly with God, the solution is to begin doing the things that will help us speak clearly with others. 
and then to allow God to be with us in this process. This is to say, our praying should include getting granular with God, listening to the curiosity of God, and allowing him to be with us even when all we have to say is balderdash. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.